live like you are dying. Uh, do we have any, we're real church, we can be honest here, lots of grace here. Do we have any country music fans here? All right, all right, we don't judge you, we don't judge you, I don't judge you. Um, but I myself, more personally, I, 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 I'm a bit eclectic, but I like rock, classical music, some 80s, 90s uh, hip-hop. But once in a while, a really good country song really grabs my fancy, and Tim McGraw's Live Like You Are Dying is one of them. Uh, listen to the lyrics. He said... I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at the x-rays, talking about the options, and talking about sweet time. And I asked him, when it sank in that this might really be the real end, how's it hit you when you get that kind of news? Man, what'd you do? And he said, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, only in a country song, right? And I loved deeper, and I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you are dying. And he said again, I was finally the husband that most of the time I wasn't. And I became a friend a friend would like to have. And all of a sudden, going fishing wasn't such an imposition. And I went three times that year. I lost my dad. I finally read the good book. And I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. The message of the song is wonderful. And it's basically this, that we need to live with an end in view. And living with an end in view, it has the power to reprioritize your life and and to cause you to to pursue what really matters in life. But I want to take a step further. I want to take it a step further and say that we shouldn't just live with an end in view, but we should live with eternity in view. This song, the message is wonderful, and, and here it's living specifically with death in view. But if we are to be wise, then we need to look beyond death and look to the life after this life and live Always in view of eternity, not just the end of your life here on earth in view of death. And what's more critical is not to live like you are dying, but to live as though you will stand before your maker one day and give account of your life. Today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the passage that was read, verses 25 to 38, Paul in fact addresses an eternal perspective. And it's just neat how he layers uh, just thoughts and topics. And, and he is principally addressing singles in today's uh, passage. And he will address married couples as well, uh, incidentally on the side. But he layers it with a view of eternity. And he addresses singles, exhorting them to especially have an eternal perspective on life. Now Paul, he's very forthright. He shows his cards And he admits his secret agenda, which is no secret, is that kind of if you play euchre, like a right bower, flushing out all the trump cards, what what Paul wants to do is to flush out as much gift of celibacy among singles as possible. Because he believes in in view of eternity that it is a a better, a more fruitful, and we'll define what better means uh, down the road in, in the message, but... He, he wants to see as many singles live their lives 
devoted as a single in view of eternity. Now, let's be real. For the singles here today, and married couples, remember when you were single. Uh, Even though you're not single as a community, just as a quick tangent, we need to be a community. We should aspire to be a community. The gospel brings us together as one. And married couples, a priority on your heart should be to encourage and and to disciple the singles and and want to see them flourish as singles. And singles, where where you are not married yet, perhaps you never will be, perhaps it's just the season of your singleness, that you would look to the married couples and families in our congregation and just to glean more wisdom and experience and to spend time and so forth. But to the singles, just to be real, if you don't have the spiritual gift of celibacy like Paul, an extra grace to handle all the loneliness and all the ups and downs, just the the whole range of emotions that come as a single, then your longing, the longings that you experience as a single, are the second most deepest running longings that you can experience as a human being next to the greatest longing, which is a reconciled relationship with God and to be found in His love. Singles, I remember just the deep, deep longing in my heart to, to find that life partner, that companion, and longing to be so close, even to be sexually one with this person. And so therefore, as these longings run deep, nothing short of an eternal perspective on life can begin to even assuage and, and, and satisfy these deep running longings. And so this brings us to our bottom line today. I hope you'll see with me what Paul is saying. I think this is what he's saying, that in response to the Gospel, the Gospel is always the forefront, and and every Sunday we're coming to respond to Jesus and His Gospel. So in response to the Gospel, always live in view of eternity. Just two big questions then to organize our time together. First, what does Scripture want us to profit? for our daily living? What does Scripture want to leave us so that we can live more fruitfully day to day? And second, how does Jesus make all the difference? How does He become my great example and power to live out what, the, what Scripture is requiring of me, what Scripture is asking me to live out? So when it comes to what Scripture wants us to profit, to live better day to day, I think Paul is saying three things. First, to everyone, singles and married, don't just live in view of eternity, but live urgently in view of eternity. Second, in view of eternity, travel light. And I'll explain what I mean by that when we get there. Third, in view of eternity, make your choice. Make your choice to be single or married. So let's dive into the text. So first Paul says to everyone, singles and married, live urgently in view of eternity. Why? Why do we need a view of eternity and to live in view of of eternity? Because just thinking back to live like you were dying, uh, one wisdom in that song is that a long-term perspective is good for our lives. When you have a long-term perspective on your finances, when you have a long-term perspective on your relationships, your marriage, on on your career, just a long-term perspective, it increases the likelihood of living your life wisely, uh, fully, and ending happily. Now, just think with me, just logically, the the longest long-term, if we draw out long-term thinking to the longest possible, then it's an eternal perspective. 
I want you to see how forthrightly and directly Paul brings up this eternal perspective. Verse In verse 26, Paul says, in view of the present distress. And that literally means in view of the impending end. Paul was living urgently with a view, with a conviction, a belief that Christ's second return was imminent. In verse 29, he repeats himself and he says, this is what I mean. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians and to you and me today, I can't be clear than than how I am about to be. And he says, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. Again, just a few verses later, Paul being very clear, we are living very close to the second coming of Christ. Now, I know that it's been almost 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter. And some of you might be thinking, well, Paul said it was a very short time and Christ hasn't come yet in 2,000 years. But don't be mistaken. 2,000 years in view of eternity is a very short time. Not even a grain of sand compared to all the sand of riverbanks and lake shores and seashores and ocean shores in across this whole planet. And in another place in Scripture, it says to God that a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. And so in verse 31, he says it again in different words, for the present form of this world is passing away. Three times in the short span, Paul says, live in view of eternity. So he wants us to feel an urgency about this. What's saying? Put differently, Paul is basically saying, there's a deadline. There's a deadline. If you're like me, then, then deadlines have the, the powerful effect to prioritize my life. And, and Paul gets at this in, in verses 28 to 31. He begins to say to singles, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, but I would spare you of that. And Paul is saying, in view of this eternity, in view of this deadline, I want, I'm about to give you some advice to help you prioritize your life so you can make the most of it. Now here's what Paul means, and just humor me for a moment. This is real church, lots of grace here, and even if my joke isn't funny, just laugh at me, okay? Or, or not at me, with me, okay? And so the oldest running joke at wedding sermons, if you've gone to Christian weddings, you've probably heard this. The, the pastor goes, there are three rings to marriage. There's the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. Right? Have you heard that before? Never heard that. Okay. And the most circulated piece of advice at wedding speeches, that I've heard at least, happy wife, happy life. There you go. Now, one time at a wedding, um, Linda and I were at the table, and there were three other couples, and um, maybe I already had a little bit too much wine, but I said, it's not happy wife, happy life. And I touted my version. I said, it's happy man, that's the plan. <laughs> right? And I had never felt such a betrayal of brotherhood in that moment because the three other men just looked away and they're just muttering under their breath, I'm sorry, bro, you're on your own there. You're on your own. <laughs> and I've never felt such dagger eyes from my wife and these three other women that I'd never met. Now, here's my point. 
The, the third marriage ring of suffering, the colloquialism, happy wife, happy life, and my utterly annihilated uh, happy man, that's the plan. Uh, these are lighthearted examples of what Paul is getting at when he says, I want to spare you worldly troubles. He's being realistic. Yes, marriage has its highs, its joys, but Paul is being realistic. Marriage has its, its thick and thin. It's the rigors of married life Just the universal, timeless reality of marriage through all the ages is that it has been tough. And so Paul is saying, time is too short. There's a deadline. And now as a Christ follower, living in view of this gospel and Jesus and His second coming, time is too short. And there's so much kingdom work to be done. We need to see as many souls come to saving faith in Jesus Christ before the appointed time. So he goes on to say in verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Pause. If misinterpreted, that sounds cultish. Is Paul saying to married Christians, split up, get a divorce? No, not at all. So what does he mean by this enigmatic phrase? If we're going to understand it, we've got to keep reading. In view of eternity, because the appointed time has grown very short, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to notice first that Paul is talking about so much more than just marriage. He's actually hitting some grand themes in life. Yes, marriage and love and romance, it's a huge part of our existence. But then he also talks about the mountain peaks of rejoicing in life and the low, dark valleys of mourning in life. Isn't that life just going through the ups and downs, the mountains, highs, and valleys, lows of life? And then he talks about work, to put it just in very practical, everyday terms, about your business dealings, about your dealings with the world. So what is he saying? He's saying when you approach life from a view of eternity, when we get to eternity... When we pass away or Christ returns and we're looking in hindsight on what we thought was a long life, 60 to whatever, 100 years or even shorter, what we thought was life, what we thought were our victories at the mountain peaks of rejoicing and our accomplishments and what we thought was so depressing and dark and lonely and low, what we thought gave us meaning in our promotions and and salaries and accomplishments through work, eternity is going to completely flip that upside down. Here's what I mean. When we're on the other side of eternity and we're looking in hindsight on our lives, the moments that you felt so accomplished, so successful, you're rejoicing, it's going to be flipped upside down in view of eternity. Those will actually have been the moments where you are potentially straying furthest away from God because you are becoming increasingly self-sufficient. The darkest valleys of your life, the mourning, it's going to be flipped upside down in view of eternity. And what you thought was the most depressing, lonely, despairing times of your life, in view of eternity and the gospel, they will end up actually being the times that were the highest because that's when the Spirit 
And Jesus and his word were calling out to you when he was closest to you, when you were coming to a place in your heart of truly looking to Christ for salvation and looking for answers beyond this life. And your work, what you thought was, was your accolades and your accomplishment in view of eternity, you'll realize that the greatest work that was most important was to work for the kingdom. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, to put it practically then, what does he mean then specifically to those who are married, live as though they are not married, to those who have wives as if they don't have wives and, and husbands as if they don't have, have husbands. What does he mean then? When we look at marriage in view of eternity, we're going to realize that the real marriage was the marriage that will happen when Christ comes back and he, he takes the hand of his bride, the church. What we thought was so important, what we fought about and, and all the joys and just all the, the wonderful adventures of marriage, we'll realize this wasn't it. That there's a greater marriage that we should have been looking forward to. To put it very practically then, what he's also saying is, Christian couples here today, if you have grace and the gospel saturating your, your souls and transforming you from the inside out, then stop doing marriage status quo. Stop doing marriage like the world. Stop taking little petty things, little molehills, and turning them into mountains and arguing and, and, and prioritizing life and things that cause you to be so stressed and angry like the world does. So Paul's first point here, all in all, is to singles and married, live urgently in view of eternity. Second then, in view of eternity, travel light. Where do we see this idea of traveling light? Look at verse 32. Paul says with a pastor's heart, I want you to be free from anxieties. Paul wants everyone to minimize unhealthy anxieties in their life. Now, why do I say unhealthy anxieties? Aren't all anxieties unhealthy? But that's our Western psychology speaking and just categorically saying all anxieties are negative. If we're going to understand Paul, then we need to understand that what he meant by this word anxiety in the original language is actually a spectrum. Yes, part of it is the negative, unhealthy, despairing, debilitating anxiety that can be associated with depression and, and so forth. But on the other end... Paul is saying that we need to maximize healthy anxieties. To put it differently, that we need to maximize healthy, deep cares. That's why Paul can say in verse 32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. We can have a healthy anxiety, a healthy, deep care for the things of the Lord, for good things. And he goes on to elaborate how to please the Lord, and he addresses women as well in verse 34. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, and betrothed literally means just unmarried virgin, but for you and me today uh, in 2017 Toronto, basically contextualize it to just uh, translate as singles. To the single woman... The single woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. 
And so if we're going to understand Paul, we need to understand the spectrum of anxieties. And so he wants us to maximize a healthy, deep care for the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, and to minimize worldly cares, debilitating anxieties. Now, again, let me illustrate, and again, just humor me. This is my attempt at, at uh, just trying to bring levity to, to, to marriage. And, and again, real church, just allow me to be real. Show me some grace here. So if I was a stand-up comedian, this would be my stand-up act about marriage. So you know you're married when you have your first big fight and you're scratching your head and you're wondering, who did I marry? This is not the person I dated, right? The married people are laughing because they, they, they all had that experience. Singles, you'll, you'll experience that, okay? You know you're married when you start getting kicked in the back at night because you're snoring, right? True story. And you know you're married when the kicking on the other end has no effect and they keep snoring through the night. And you know you're married when you wake up fully rested. Oh, that was such a good sleep, but your back is a little sore for some reason. But then your partner is just cranky, okay? You know you're married when your husband only has four emotions. Hungry, angry, tired, and horny. Okay? You know you're married when your wife's idea of, of male lingerie is you holding a vacuum in one hand, a Swiffer wet jet in the other, a Windex holster, and a, a, bottle, of, uh, yeah, a bottle of Windex there and donning an apron. Right? Now, you know, just to transition from marriage to, to family life, you know you're a dad when you wake up in the middle of the night shivering because your kids have crawled into your bed yet again. They're snuggling up against mom, and they've pulled the blanket off of you, and so you're, they're cold shivering. And you know you're a dad when this has happened so often now that you've resigned to just sleeping in a sleeping bag in your own bed. And your name is Albert, okay? That's my life, okay? That's my life. Now, in all seriousness, just to switch gears very abruptly, but in all seriousness, I know I'm caught between the deep care, the the healthy anxiety of wanting to please the Lord and, and the anxiety of wanting to please my wife and kids when my son says, oh, don't, don't bother Dad. He's got to finish his sermon. And then the three of them, my two kids and my wife, go off and do something together. That's tough. I know I'm stuck between the anxiety of how to please the Lord and, and the anxiety to, to please my family when I want to, on a whim's notice, just go out and hang out with some members of the church or, or non-Christian friends and just chill. But it's in conflict with my family's nighttime routine. And you don't need to be, and you shouldn't just be a pastor to experience these things. If, if we're all just genuine, sincere Christ followers, we'll all experience these tensions at some point in our life. Put differently, think of your time, your emotional energy, your mental energy, your, your willpower, all your resources, your finances, everything, like a big pie. Okay? Just imagine a pie chart. And what Paul is saying as well then is that we need to not only maximize our healthy cares 
for the Lord, how to please Him, and to minimize worldly anxieties. But he's also saying now we have to learn to manage those anxieties. So decrease the number of unhealthy anxieties to take up as little of that pie as possible, what Paul calls worldly things and worldly troubles, and to increase as much of that pie, the slice of the pie, to be healthy cares about how to please the Lord. And that's why I'm saying, in view of eternity, all of us, whether singled or married, we we need to deliberate how to travel as light as possible through life. Third, in view of eternity, make your choice to be married or single then. Just to now bring it down to, to the bottom line. This is what Paul is saying. Make your choice to be married or single. Paul wants singles and married to own their choice. Whatever choice you make, own it. Have an understanding about it. We see Paul's pastor's heart again in verse 35. And Paul's motive to the Corinthian Christians there is for their benefit. He says for their benefit. It means a wholeness of of just their life, their mind, their emotions, just a, a, a complete wholeness, their benefit. And Paul makes it amply clear that he is in no way trying to wrestle their arms, to twist their arms. In no way is he trying to guilt trip the singles there into celibacy. And that's why he says in verse 35, not to lay any restraint upon you. Paul is saying, look, you're a grown-up. You're an adult. Make your choice and own it but just do it prayerfully and carefully. Now, look at verse 36. And to the married people, or those who would choose to be married, Paul, here, he makes it clear, marriage is good. I celebrate marriage. And he does it, he proves his heart, his motive, by keeping those who would be married and those who are married accountable. He says, make your choice with passion. Where do I see this? In verse 36, Paul validates clearly that marriage is good. And so he says, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, meaning the one that he or she is engaged to, if his passions are strong, right, just just the emotions of love and being smitten, and then notice this line, this little phrase, and it has to be. Paul is saying to those who would consider marriage and those by implication who are married, if you're married... Make sure you are married for the right reasons. Make sure that you are passionate about that person. Make sure that you are head over heels in love with this person. That you are ready to give yourself wholly to that person till death do you part. That passion should be there. It has to be strong if you're going to endeavor into marriage. Do not get married for the wrong reasons. Do not get married because you feel societal pressure and the the traditional sense of identity that you only have some worth if you are married in life and can set up a societally normal situation and get a mortgage and have a job and so forth. Don't get married because you have cracks in your self-esteem as you look at your friends who are getting married and you're envying that they're at a different place and you're thinking the grass is greener on the other side and you'll only be worth something if you can match them. Don't you love that about Paul? He's being so real. And, and, and I love his passion for the married people as well. 
And again, in view of eternity, don't do marriage status quo. Then he addresses the singles who would consider a life of singleness and devotion to the Lord and, and put differently celibacy. And Paul says in verse 37, make your choice with a grace-saturated conscience. Where do we see this? In verse 37 he writes, but whoever is firmly established in his heart. There it is, that, that if you're going to make a choice towards singleness and celibacy, it needs to be thought out, deliberated, wrestled with from your soul, your conscience. And then notice the next phrase, being under no necessity. What Paul is saying, speaking to those who would choose singleness and celibacy, he's saying, if you do choose singleness and celibacy, then search your heart and ensure as much as it is in your own power that you are not doing it out of a sense of guilt or a sense of holier than thou, that as if it's more spiritual to be single or to pursue celibacy. No, both marriage and singleness in their own rights please the Lord equally. And be certain that you're not doing this out of a sense of self-righteousness. And then he goes on to explain, but having his or her desire under control has determined this in his heart, again, your conscience, a grace saturated, not out of necessity. That's grace. That any singleness, any celibacy that is going to manifest in your life is because it's God's grace working from the inside out. And just like Paul, God's grace manifested itself in the form of celibacy. He's saying here that it needs to be an overflow of Christ's grace. And so he says, if you've determined this in your heart, to keep her as his betrothed. Now, I don't agree with this translation. And uh, most of the commentators I read, they said it's probably better translated because we won't get into all the nitty-gritty, but it kind of doesn't make sense. And so what most commentators say, what Paul meant here, you can there's legitimate uh, argument to say he's just talking about to keep your virginity. He's uh, speaking to the single. And he was assuming that they were uh, virgins. But even if you're not today, God's grace covers us no matter what uh, your story is. But if you're single right now, if you've decided in your heart and God's grace is overflowing for you to keep your singleness, He will do well. And so in verse 38, he concludes, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Pause. I just said that it's not more spiritual to be single than to be married. So what does Paul mean here? Why is he saying that the single will do better? We have to think of it as quality versus quantity. Here's what I mean. Even Jesus himself, our Lord, at one point when he was preparing to depart, he said to his disciples, you will do greater things than even me. How can Jesus, the Savior of the world, the sinless one, say to his broken, sinful, inconsistent disciples that they will do greater things than him? It's a matter of quantity. When Christ left this earth, and he's in heaven, he's no longer here on this earth, his disciples, his church, through all of time, will quantitatively do more 
kingdom work than he could have done, that he did in the three years of ministry. And similarly, Paul is saying something quantitative. It goes back to that pie. Married people quantitatively will just have less time, less, so put it another way, singles will have more non-marital and non-family, non-marital and non-family time to do more kingdom work outside of those situations. It's a matter of quantity. And that's Paul's motive. The time is short and there's a deadline. He wants to see as much kingdom work done as possible. Yes, raising a godly family, exemplifying Christ's grace in your marriage, and being an example to the world of how to fight fairly and to forgive one another quickly and and to have grace in Christ as the foundation of marriage. That is kingdom work too. But it's different from being able to just pick up and go to another country or to uh, spend time with many other people without the cost of neglecting a family in a marriage. And so he's talking about quantity here. That's what he means by the single will do even better. So all in all, in view of eternity, both done in Christ, singleness and marriage, they bring great glory to God. And so make your choice. Now, where do we see Jesus in all this? How does Jesus become our great power and example to live these things out? The clue is in verse 32. When Paul says, how to please the Lord, that's the clue. Why can can you and me even think of pleasing the Lord? And how is it even conceivable that you and me as sinners can, can please the Lord? Why? Because the Lord Jesus first pleased the Father. He pleased the Father first. And the Father said twice, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And how? By looking on Jesus by faith daily, where you and I lack, where you and I fail to live out our singleness or our marriage in a way that pleases, to look on Jesus by faith daily to be the Father's pleasure for us. Both singleness and marriage have their challenges. Both require a power and a grace outside of ourselves. So Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the great single. The great single who came to this earth. He was literally a single male human. And he lived sinlessly, chastely, faithfully, purely. And he made a beeline for the cross. And even through the deepest loneliness, he asked Who is my family? Who are my friends? Where does the Son of Man have a place to rest and lay His head? A place to call home. And in all this, Jesus did not sin. And He pleased the Father. So, my single friend today, look with faith on Jesus. Be in union with your beautiful single Savior. And yet, This single Jesus, He is the single, the great single, who gave up His life wholly, who was passionate and gave Himself up wholly, completely to death on a cross for His church, the bride. And He's waiting one day to take the hand 
of His church, of you and me, of those who profess faith in Him. So married one, look with faith upon Jesus, the great husband, the future husband. When you lack in patience, when you lack in gentleness and kindness, when you lack in not keeping a record of wrongs and quick forgiveness towards your spouse, look to Him. And single, my single friend, remember that you are in fact not single. You are married. You are in union to Christ and His church. And married one, your eternal destiny is in fact still singleness. Because we know that when we get to eternity, when we get to the new creation, there will be no marriage amongst humans. Only perfect intimacy between you as a single and your God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and with one another as the church. Remember that there is a singleness and intimacy in eternity that far outshines all the intimacy, pleasures, and joys of marriage here on earth. I started today's sermon with a song. So let me also finish with a song I heard this week um, by Daniel Johnstone. True love will find you in the end. You'll find out just who was your friend. Don't be sad. I know you will. But don't give up until. True love will find you in the end. This is a promise with a catch. Only if you're looking can it find you. Because true love is searching too. But how can it recognize you unless you step out into the light? Don't be sad. I know you will. But don't give up until true love finds you in the end. Now, this song, it's speaking of love on this earth. Single friend, married friend, what we have in common ultimately is our searching not for true love just in the end. No, we are all searching for the truest love in eternity. And the gospel proclaims that that is Jesus. Let's pray.